all of this is coming straight out of your Bible. It's going to be a crazy weekend. I can already tell. I was backstage just now and I got assaulted by a bat. <laughs> Not like a baseball bat, like a flying bat. Don't worry, we have him contained and we will set the little creature free at some point. So, um, but that's just weird when you're standing back there and all of a sudden, whoop, 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 in front of your face, that'll throw anybody. Okay, anyway, hi, I'm Grant. Welcome to church. Glad you're here. This weekend, we're going to talk about naked weddings, animal parades, and conversations with snakes. In the next three weeks, we're going to cover sibling uh, murder, angel sex, and a worldwide catastrophic flood. Parents, we have great environments for your children, and you should put them there because it will be awkward for you if you don't over the next couple weeks. Just saying. It's all in your Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates And man is not the center of the story. God is the center of the story. In Genesis chapter 2, God takes a man. He creates him in his image, puts him in a garden all by himself, and then makes a profound statement. It is not good for a man to be alone. Amen. Because if you leave a man alone, he will eat pizza all day long. He will buy inflatable furniture. He will wear Spider-Man pajamas and never leave his mother's house. He will believe that you can actually have a career playing video games. And that is not good, according to the Bible. Just saying, okay. God puts man in a garden and he puts a loving boundary around the man. He says, here's the deal. You can eat from any tree you want to, just not that tree in the middle. Stay away from that tree. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason you shouldn't eat from it is because it's deadly. That's a good boundary. If you eat from it, you will die. So don't eat from it. And then God hosts an animal parade. Looking for a partner for Adam. And I just picture Adam standing in the middle of the garden, right? Looking for a partner. Moose, no. Ostrich, no. Tarantula, hard no. No. Sloth, no. And he gets all the way to the end of the line and it's like, that's it. Those are my options. God's just like, no, 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 no. And God creates Eve out of Adam. You don't have to like it. That's how the Bible says it went down. And Adam responds the very first time to seeing a beautiful naked woman in front of him with these words. You are the flesh of my flesh and the bone of my bone. Which makes some of us believe Adam had no game at all at all, unless you understand what he's really saying. What he's really saying is this, God has been so good to me in this beautiful gift that he's given, I can't tell where I end and you start. It's just beautiful. It's the very first wedding, and while the dress code is incredibly interesting, it's the relational template that is still God's ideal today. It's still God's ideal. A man and a woman making a covenant before God for a lifetime. I've been thinking a lot about weddings. Next Saturday night, my my son, Braden, is getting married. And I'm performing the wedding. You need to pray. I'm going to be a mess. I was practicing this week in my office, practicing. People are walking by like, are you okay? Like, Grant, you all right? You all right? Because I was crying. Surprise, right? A huge shock. The suits are bought, the flowers are ready, the cake is melting somewhere in eastern Washington, (laughs) and my baby boy's getting ready to marry the girl of his dreams. And what's amazing is his dream is the same dream that Adam had. One flesh for a lifetime, before God. So to this point in the story, it's been perfect, but as as life has a way of teaching you, it's not always perfect, right? 
Genesis chapter 3 is where creation falls apart. It's a perfect day in a perfect place with a perfect relationship between a man and his wife and God. And then with one single conversation, everything just falls apart. It's a crafty conversation. The Bible says this happened. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. Even though the bat backstage is fairly crafty, I'm just saying. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden for the record? That was not what God said. So we learned something right here, right now. Satan lies. He always lies. And you need to know that as a fact. He twists the truth. He deceives. He destroys. If Satan tells you something is good, it's bad. If Satan tells you something is right, it's wrong. That's the way it works. The Bible continues. The woman said to the serpent. Oh, let's stop there for a second. That's a bad move. When you start talking back to Satan in your own authority, you're in trouble. If you're going to talk to the devil, and sometimes you need to, you need to talk to him exactly the same way that Jesus did. You speak God's truth back to him. You speak God's scripture back to him. You don't claim your own authority. You get under the name of the authority of Jesus, and then you tell Satan where he can and where he cannot go. Just saying, okay? The Bible says we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Here's the question. Why would God put something in the middle of the garden if they weren't supposed to touch it? God's introducing a beautiful and toxic thing called choice. We can use our choices for evil. You used your choice for good today. For church. Maybe for air conditioning. I don't care what your motive was. I'm glad you're here. It's a painful gift of choice at times. Here comes the lie. The serpent said, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want you to notice something here. It's the same satanic strategy that the devil's been using since the beginning of time. It's always exactly the same thing. Satan will always tempt you to question God's character and push you towards independence from God. That's what he wants. He wants you to question whether or not God is really, really good. And then he wants you to declare autonomy and do your own thing. Let me give you a modern example. What did God say in, in the Bible about the money that he lent you that you're supposed to steward for the rest of your life? Well, I read the Bible this week, and my Bible says this, bring the whole tithe, so bring a tenth of it, into the storehouse, and see if I will not pour out so much blessing on you, you won't know what to do with it. Test me in this, says the Lord God. So God says this, it's not your money. My 10 is bigger, or my 90, or your 90 is still smaller than my 10. If you'll trust me, I will pour out blessing on you that you won't understand. And you may not understand in the way that it comes to you, but I promise this will go unbelievably well. One time in scripture where God says, give it your, test me and see whether or not this is the way it goes. What's the snake still saying today? Does anybody else have a wallet that talks to them? I do. All the time. Can you really trust God with your money? What if you don't have enough? What if God lets you starve? You better hold on to it. It's yours after all. God doesn't know how to play the stop market. Keep it. Hoard it. You, you can take it with you. I promise. Here's a question. What snake are you talking to right now? 
Where are you questioning God's character and declaring your own autonomy? Let's just be really real, okay? I've had a lot of coffee. Let's go there. I can live with my girlfriend. I can do whatever I want to. I can pick as many sexual partners as I need to. I don't care what God said about that adultery thing. God is just such a prude. I should be free to experiment how I see fit. You can cheat on your taxes. It's no big deal. The government's corrupt anyway. You should make your own rules. Why would God put that kind of an authority over top of you if he really loved you? You need to go and do your own thing. You can dishonor your mother and father. It's no big deal. You can get to heaven if you're just a really, really good person. God grades on a curve. He's just going to slap you a high five when you walk through the door. It's no big deal. You can twist the truth. You can serve God in money. It's easy. Just give it your best shot. You can even idolize yourself. You can talk to snakes. It's no big deal. It's just a conversation with the same strategy that the devil's always had, and he's still using it. I got a question. Where in the world was Adam while his wife is talking to a snake? I mean, where's the protection? Where's the love? In a modern context, he's gaming on the other side of the garden. That's what he's doing. No, he's not. He's abandoning his role as protector. Men don't abandon your role. Now, I totally understand. My wife is a secure, powerful, strong human being. She's tough as nails. She's tougher than I am. But that doesn't excuse me from having a loving, protective role. Because she's God's gift to me. Now the conversation is going to get really real. It's a moment of dire confusion. Here's what your Bible says. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Before you judge Eve, if you've ever bought a single lie from the enemy, we're all in exactly the same spot. She gave some to her husband who was with her. (laughs) Sure, now he shows up, right? As soon as there's food, here come the guys. That's how it works, right? And he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So notice this. They fall together. They're complicit together and perfection disappears. And what they saw is completely acceptable and free and transparent and authentic before actually being naked in front of each other, suddenly becomes a a source of shame and they cover themselves. And we've been covering ourselves ever since. We cover ourselves with laughter because the funny guy hides his pain behind a mask of of jokes and and humor. We cover ourselves with accolades and resumes because the successful guy actually needs you to to think that he actually is who he pretends that he is. We cover ourselves with status and and, and stuff because after all, we've got to keep up appearances. That's the way that it's got to be. We cover ourselves in people-pleasing because we think if anybody knew who I really was, the chance of me actually being loved or somewhere between slim and none we cover ourselves as an art and that's what they do they cover themselves because perfection is gone they cover themselves because they fear that god is going to reject them they sinned we sin it's just the way it works and the relationship is broken by an ugly word i put it in your outline corruption it's corruption It's in verse 8 that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? For the risk, or just for the record, God knows where they are. 
He isn't asking for himself. He's asking for them because he wants to know something. Now that that sin has entered the story, are you willing to risk revealing yourself? I'm going to say this. It's always worth the risk to reveal yourself to a God who said, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's always good if we walk in the light as he is in the light. That's when the really good stuff starts to happen. Don't hide. Don't hide. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not not to eat from? And the man said, here it comes. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what's this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see the blame shift? Funny thing about corruption, right? It, It spreads like a cancer, like a virus. We find corruption entering every single level. It starts with the corruption of creation. Okay, The perfect world that God created is suddenly shattered. And it's true. God saw it coming because he gave us something that he knew potentially be toxic but could also be so unbelievably beautiful. He gave us the gift of free will. He gave us the opportunity to choose. And we need to know this. If God doesn't give you the ability to choose, what he created was a series of robots who would perform a function. And that's not the way God does it. Instead, he gave us the gift of choice, knowing some of us would use that choice to reject him. But God believed it was worth it. But everything's broken. Creation is corrupted and it doesn't stop. We also find corruption in the spiritual relationship. So instead of walking with God, communing with God and talking with God, we find man hiding from God. Instead of deep friendship, all of a sudden there's this big distance between the two of them. Instead of choosing to believe and trust God's word, man suddenly thinks, I think I know better. You remember back when we started the series, we talked about what happened in pre-creation as a group of angels rebelled against God and they were cast out of heaven. Why? Because of pride. Pride shows up here too. Adam and Eve, they just think they know better. I can pick my own tree, thank you very much. It's all broken and falling apart. The spiritual relationship is broken and then we find the corruption of a human relationship Boy, I want you to hear this today because I need to hear it. You can't experience the fullness of a human relationship without the foundation of a relationship with the one true God. You can't get there. I mean, this is the most, look at how it breaks down here. This is the most epic blame shift in human history, right? Did you eat from the tree? The woman you put here with me, she did it. It's not my fault. I was distracted. I was on the other side of the, gar- uh, other side of the garden playing World of Warcraft. It was just a really good game. Sorry, God. I got completely distracted. I looked away. I ignored a conversation. I was busy. I was working. I was paying the bills, and she messed it up. One's complicit. The other one is apathetic. He blames her, and then she blames the snake, right? This is where we get the famous phrase, the devil made me do it. No, the devil just opened the door and we walked through of our own free will. You know what's amazing to me? Nobody takes responsibility. If you have pain in your life from sin, which I do, I've learned this. When I own it, when I take personal responsibility, God takes the pain and leaves the lesson. 
The perfection is corrupted, the painful results, consequences. God actually says, because you've done this, because you've done this. Can we agree today that none of us like consequences? I don't. Now here comes another snake conversation. As soon as we start talking about consequences, the snake starts whispering in our ear. You know, if God really loved you, he would make all of your problems and their consequences go away. That's not the way it works. Because without consequences, there are no lessons. Without scars, there are no opportunities for grace to come in and teach us a different way of going. It's that difficult tension between a loving God and a just God. A loving God is like a parent, but a just God is also like a parent. And I, there were things my kids needed to learn. There were things I needed to learn. Let me tell you a quick story. So I grew up in Manitoba. Every day after school in the middle of winter, we would go play hockey on the outside rink across from my home on, in, in, this, in this playground area. And every day, we, we'd put our skates on and we'd go. We played for hours in very cold temperatures. And I remember one, one Saturday night, I'm watching Hockey Night in Canada and, and, and Daryl Sittler, my hero from the Toronto Maple Leafs, they were showing what kind of equipment he used and, and he was putting on his skates and I noticed something. He was only wearing cotton socks. Now he played indoors, but I didn't get that, okay? I'm just saying he's got cotton socks on that. Oh, okay. Apparently NHL players wear cotton socks. That's what I'm doing. So the next day, I'm getting ready to put my skates on and my mom's just like, hey, you need to put wool socks on along with those cotton socks. I'm like, hmm. Apparently my mother knows nothing about the National Hockey League. So... When she wasn't looking, off came the wool socks on, when the cotton socks on, I went and played hockey for three hours. Minus 36 degrees Celsius, which is Fahrenheit for really, really, really cold, okay? Just so you know, like freezing cold. And I played and I played and I played and I came back and my feet kind of felt funny when I walked in the house, took off my skates, took off my socks, and about 15 minutes later, I'm in unbelievable pain. My feet hurt so bad, I am screaming, I am crying. I was experiencing something called chillblains. Chillblains happen right before your feet are frostbitten, and you lose all feeling. And the nerves in your feet, because they've gotten so cold, are screaming at you. And my mom walked in, saw the cotton socks, gave me the look, you know what I'm talking about, right? Gave me the look, picked me up, walked me outside, and stuck me in a snowbank. Now, some people are like, your mom did what? Ah, you people from the Pacific Northwest. Okay, so. <laughs> when you have chillblains and the nerves are screaming in your feet, the only way you can make them be quiet is to shock them with cold. So she walks me outside, sticks me in a snowbank. I'm thinking, you don't love me. She brings me back inside, gently warms my feet up, and I'm like, my mommy loves me. My feet feel better. <laughs> I learned a very hard lesson about cold temperatures, feet, and the wisdom of my mom. No consequences, no lesson. In this account, there's consequences for the snake. The Bible says you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is known as the pre-evangelium, depending on how you want to pronounce it. It's the first mention of the gospel. It's the story of Jesus. There's going to be conflict between Satan and the offspring of God and a pure woman is going to give birth to a perfect son and the snake is going to get his shot in. And it's even going to appear that the snake wins when he strikes 
This human being that's also perfectly God. The son is going to be struck and put on a cross and it appears like the snake's going to win. But three days later, the son is going to rise and crush the head of Satan once and for all. And if you need to read the final outcome, you read Revelation 20 and you just stand in the middle of it, read it out loud and say, that's a good chapter because at the end of the story, the son and the children win. It's beautiful. There's consequences for the snake. There's consequences for Eve. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. You will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you because of disobedience and broken relationship. Now there's going to be pain every time life comes into the world and there's going to be relational pain and power struggles because a loving boundary that God put there for the right reason was violated. Consequences for Adam too. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam, here, here, here's the deal. Work and weeds. Toil and tension. Thorns and thistles. Broken relationships. Ultimately, banishment, pain, and problems. And the root of all of it, disobedience. That's a clue. God's boundaries are put there for our good. Every time we violate them, we end up with thorns and thistles. That's the way it works. His boundaries are loving. They're beneficial. And the snake still comes today and says, really? That's where God put the fence? trying to cut you off. What kind of a God would put a fence there? You know what you need to do? You need to tear that fence down and declare autonomy. When you do that, I got a question. It's the same question I asked myself. How'd that work for you? Here's the beautiful thing at the end of Genesis chapter 3. In my Bible, the, the chapter title is called The Fall of Man. Kind of depressing until you get all the way to the very end. I love the last verse of Genesis 3 because instead of God just washing his hands of Adam and Eve and saying, you got what you deserve, you need to just move on, get out of my garden. Instead of that, there are still consequences. They have to leave, but God doesn't walk away. He follows. And he covers and and he calls. I mean, of all the responses that God could have given to two people who exercised their own choice, I am amazed at the fact that God chose covering and compassion. That's good news. The Bible says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God covers. And don't miss the point. The word skin literally means animal skin. They had to come from somewhere. For the first time ever, blood had to be spilled in order for man to be covered. Don't miss it. Don't miss Jesus at the end of Genesis chapter 3. For the sin of the world to be covered, the precious blood of Jesus had to be spilled so that we could wear a covering of God's grace. A high price had to be paid. Jesus fulfilled the pre-evangelium. He bore our consequence in his body on the cross. He covered us in his perfection so that we can stand before God and not be struck dead. I got a question for you. How's God covering you this morning? God's not covering me. Really? Did you just breathe? 
That's God's common grace to everybody in the room. How about the specific grace? Did you get here safely today? Do you have an opportunity to choose Jesus all day long? Has your pile of sin been covered just like mine? Yeah, don't say God hasn't been covering already today. Genesis 3 is the perfect example of this cycle that we've been talking about all the way through. It always starts the same way, right? God creates. Creates this beautiful garden. He creates man, not as the center of the story, but God is the center of the story. And then God connects in such a deep, intimate, personal way. And he brings Adam and Eve together. And, and, and then they make the decision. They make the decision if, if we sin, you can choose today. You get to pick. You can use that power of choice to either choose the godly path or you can go another direction if you want to. It's really up to us. God chose to love, by the way, even in the face of sin. So if we sin, then the relationship actually breaks, it shatters. And then there's distance and pain and we we feel the fall of mankind in our own soul. But because of God's grace and mercy, God restores a door and openness to be able to welcome his children back into his presence. He opens the door in spite of the sin, opens the door to relationship and he pursues and he calls. And then God initiates this beautiful thing called redemption. He actually takes our pain and our consequences, and he transforms it into this beautiful set of lessons that we can actually live by and share with other people. We get an opportunity to brag about God's grace. And then, even though God knows we're probably going to go around the circle again, God begins to create again a new opportunity, a new day in which to choose. Honor God, dishonor God. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be covering some really, really crazy stuff. Next week, we're going to have a murder, just so you know. Two boys, Cain and Abel, are going to get into it. It's not going to be pretty. Week after that, we're going to talk about the most confusing chapter. I wanted to sidestep it. We're not going <laughs> to. You can go ahead and read. Genesis 6, 1 through 7, and then go, what in the world's he going to say about that? And then we're going to talk about the moment when God actually shares a boundary and says, I'm going to start all over again. And we're not going to focus on the fact that God wipes out the world. We're going to focus on the miracle that God actually chose to save eight. It's miraculous. But we're going to do it all in the light of Genesis 1, chapter 2 and 3, where God in his grace just keeps showing up and covering I hope you know he's covering you today with grace, mercy, and an opportunity to choose him. If you don't know Jesus today, I want you to know this. He did all of this, not so you'd put yourself in the center of your universe. He did all of this so you'd put him in the center of the universe. And I don't know about you, but I always get tempted when the snake whispers in my ear that I should take back the throne of my life. That never goes well for me. So today, my prayer for our church is that we would declare full-on abdication and that we would all vacate the thrones of our lives and invite the King of Kings to set up His rule and His reign and His kingdom in our hearts. If you've never experienced that, there'll be a team of us standing up here at the front after the church and today, we'd love to talk to you about it. Let's pray together. 
God, thank you for this moment. God, you could have washed your hands of Adam and Eve. You could have washed your hands of, of Grant Fishbook a long time ago. And you would have been completely just in doing that. But instead you covered. And you're still covering. So Lord, for all those who feel exposed and vulnerable, lonely and isolated, I pray that they would know that there's a God in heaven who wants to cover them. To give them safety, security, and acceptance. Lord, may our hearts use the gift of will that you gave to us to choose you today. And in doing so, may your name be praised. I pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God's people said.